Hey folks, it's Jared. As occasionally happens here, we are hostage to the rapid course of events. And in the case of this week's episode, we'd record with Rusi's Dr. Sid Kaushal not long after what turned out to be the first raid on Sevastopol by the Ukrainian Navy. So we've seen some reporting online that a second strike took, took place just last week. This episode doesn't take that into account. So if you're wondering why we're not talking about it, that's why. Still plenty of interesting conversation here related to the initial attack and what it might mean for the future of naval warfare. This episode was edited and produced by Jonathan Selling. I'd like to pause here to highlight our local chapters, whether you're in South Korea, Egypt, Singapore, France, New York, India, or the Caribbean. Chances are there's a SimSec local chapter near you. You can find a full listing of our chapters and contact information on the website simsec.org. So if you're interested, please reach out and get involved. Finally, I want to take the opportunity to recommend our partners in the SimSec podcast network, The Bilge Pumps. You can find Alex, Jamie, Drack, and a pile of iron brew bottles wherever you download your podcasts. And with that, Kimber's Men. You're listening to Sea Control, hosted by the Center for International Maritime Security. Aloha, shimmates, and welcome back aboard Sea Control. My guest today is Dr. Siddharth Kaushal, and we're going to discuss his piece for Rusi entitled Ukraine's Uncrewed Raid on Sevastopol and the Future of War at Sea. Sid, welcome. Um, As you tell your Tell the audience a little bit more about yourself. Of course, and uh, thanks for the opportunity to be here. So I'm Sid Korshul. I work at the Royal United Services Institute. So it's a defense think and security think tank within the UK that aims to provide uh, independent analysis to both the British government the ar- and the armed forces in particular. So I sit within the military sciences team uh, at RUSI. We tend to focus quite a bit on the evolving character of warfare across the various domains. And my specialism is uh, sea power, so all mass is naval. As a reminder to the listeners, all opinions are our own and not reflective of any institution with which we might be otherwise associated. So, so what do we know about the Ukrainian attack on Sevastopol and what was the response? Right. So what we know about the attack is that it involved a combination of UAVs and uncrewed surface vessels. Uh, now, the surface vessels the Ukrainians used were quite an interesting and in some ways quite an ingenious uh, little piece of engineering. So they used a fair bit of commercial off-the-shelf technology, including, you know, engines that were used in recreational devices. Uh, they had a Starlink antennae and, poss- and, and electro-optical sensors. And we know the last bit because we got a bit of footage of one of the vessels in its terminal sprint of attack towards um, the Russian frigate Admiral Makarov. Uh, now, in terms of the damage uh, the Ukrainians did during this attack, uh, it would appear, I mean, there was claim damage, obviously, to the Admiral Makarov, as well as to other Russian vessels. Uh, that couldn't be conclusively verified. But what we do know is that immediately after the attack, the Russians uh, took a number of measures to uh, bot, uh, to buttress the defenses around Sevastopol, for example, placing booms around the harbor entrances. Uh, it probably contributed to making the Black Sea Fleet a bit more cautious about venturing past Sevastopol, although that claim is a bit difficult to falsify because after the sinking of the Moskva and, of course, the suppression of Snake Island, the Black Sea Fleet's been pretty cautious in any case. It's mostly cl- sort of clung to Crimea and stuck to a sort of a cruise missile, they effectively as a, as a launch vector for, for cruise missiles against uh, Ukraine's infrastructure. Uh, so that's, that's kind of the broad strokes of uh, the attack itself. In terms of the uncrewed vessels, it would seem that they were guided to their location by something like GNSS. And uh, in their last phase, 
one would assume that there was a handover to some form of remote control, because obviously you're looking at electro-optical sensors with fairly narrow fields of view, but also uh, in terms of the processing power on the vessel, it's not clear that they were, you know, entirely autonomous in terms of their capacity to designate their targets, although, of course, that, you know, remains a working hypothesis. Can you explain what a GNSS is for listeners as well? Uh, sure. So it, effectively satellite navigation uh, that allows a, a vessel, well, you know, you would use it on an uncrewed vessel or indeed something like a cruise missile to guide it to the general location of its target, at which point in the sort of terminal sprint, once it's in the broad lo- uh, sort of vicinity of what it's looking for, you would have a handover to some sort of sensor. So on a cruise missile, it would be an active seeking radar, for example. In this case, it seems to have been an electro-optical camera that uh, that did the final sort of identification. So where else have we seen USVs used recently? Uh, so we've seen USVs used in combat uh, by the Houthis in Yemen to pretty good effect against uh, coalition vessels who have uh, been operating to uh, blockade, to uh, block, or not blockade, but rather quarantine the flow of arms to Yemen. So, for example, you have uh, a, a successful Houthi uh, attack on the Saudi frigate Al-Madina some years ago. Uh, in this case, uh, the boat appears to have been remote controlled, so there must have been something within relative line of sight that actually guided it to its target. Uh, you've also seen uh, the, the IRGC uh, experiment with uncrewed surface and subsurface vessel uh, and uh, uh, subsurface vessels uh beyond the sort of uh, more cru- uh, the crude side of things we've also seen um, sort of experimental work in places like the PRC uh with more sophisticated uh, uncrewed uh, surface assets so uh, companies in China for example experimenting with uh, uncrewed uh, boat swarms that uh, communicate laterally to effectively allow sort of on the fly adjustments of courses of action and tactics which obviously is a is a step change in sophistication relative to what we've seen in say Ukraine or for that matter off uh, in the Babel mandate why are you advising some caution for the analysts who are a bit over-enthusiastic about what this might pretend for naval warfare? Yeah, so I think there's, you know, there's an undeniable, uh, the impact of um, unmanned capabilities in the maritime domain is undeniable. But I think there's a few reasons we might want to caveat our assessments of what that impact might be. Uh, so the first of them, I would say, is that, you know, single vector solutions to challenges that depend on a particular kind of technology are inherently fragile to that technology being offset. So, you know, one thinks of the Jeune Ecole, for example, the uh, turn of the 20th century uh, French school of thought, whose progenitors believed that a combination, that the torpedo, you know, launched by a combination of things, a fast attack torpedo boats, uh, and light cruisers and later submarines, although that developed down the road, would uh, effectively make uh, close-in areas uh, very difficult to approach for major surface combatants and could also potentially allow for them to be overwhelmed at sea and and enable other forms of commerce raiding. Uh, the problem wasn't that, you know, the basic proposition that the torpedo would be central wasn't right. It's that the action-reaction dynamic was overlooked. So once you have, uh, when, particularly when it comes to torpedo boats, uh, solutions like uh, smokeless firing guns, which uh, prevent, you know, them from using the smoke of gunfire as cover for their approach, or torpedo nets... <clears throat> A lot of the value of the sort of the Jeunicole approach starts to disappear because it's essentially bet the house on a single kind of technology. So I think the first is, you know, the fragility of a single tech centric approach. 
of course, uh, an approach that begins with a single uh, bit of technology and then, you know, moves on uh, and kind of builds its concepts on top of that. I think the second uh, issue uh, you might con- we might consider uh, is uh, embracing technology before its uh, its maturity. And obviously, you know, examples that come to mind are things like the German Wunderwaffe of uh, the end of the Second World War, where, you know, you do have a series of genuinely pretty revolutionary capabilities, but they're embraced before they've really reached maturity and therefore before they they really have the uh, the opportunity to have a transformative impact and arguably they represent you know an opportunity cost relative to uh, more traditional capabilities the third i would say is the tendency to exacerbate say do gaps within a uh, sort of military force structures so there's been some very interesting work on you know we we tend to look at innovation through the lens of opportunity and in particular the le- the uh, risks that excessive conservatism can impose on a force structure but there's also a risk that organizations can interpret innovations in ways that that enable them to believe that gaps between their resource commitments and their and and their actual uh, I'm sorry their resources and their commitments can be elided over with the right technological sort of innovation, the right technological change. And that's obviously a way a way in which actually organizations can embrace innovation in a way that reinforces rather than uh, that reinforces sort of inter- in existing organizational pathologies rather than sort of uh, solving them. Uh, the final po- uh, two points I'd make is that even sensible ideas can sometimes be um, exaggerated. So, you know, think of someone like Harold Brown and the second offset strategy in the US. Many of his ideas about, you know, precision strike are absolutely vindicated. But there were areas in which he uh, took the logic of his argument a bit too far. So, you know, for example, his idea that the emergence of the cruise missile had rendered the aircraft carrier obsolete uh, comes to mind as one of, as, as one example. And the final, uh, sort of issue I took, I, I sort of talk about is, uh, what one historian called, you know, the shock of the old, that actually a lot of times when new technology is embraced, it fits into a package with existing capabilities in a way that enhances it rather than actually fundamentally changing the character of war. So, you know, if you take an uh, example of you know, unmanned capabilities in the land domain in Ukraine, uh, one of their primary roles has been to act as spotters for artillery. So, you know, it's absolutely true that they've changed the battlefield in Ukraine, but it's been by actually turning some pretty dumb artillery into, you know, very precise capabilities. Uh, similarly, when you look at things like anti-ship missiles at sea, um, you know, they certainly did, or, or indeed torpedoes, they certainly did change the character of war at sea, but it was by fix, fitting into a combined arms mix with existing capabilities. And there's a risk that when you focus on the technology first, that sort of, uh, that factor tends to be elided over. So I'd say those are the major risks and, and areas where you might want to not necessarily uh, ignore the impact of unmanned capabilities, but uh, introduce a cautionary note about how we how we think about them. What are the risks to fleets that move too quickly to embrace new technology? Yeah, so I think there's a couple of risks that uh, fleets that move a bit too quick 
on the technological front face. So the first of them, the first risk is that you are left uh, like the Jeunicole with uh, what one commentator called a fleet of experiments. So you <clears throat> invest quite a lot of institutional capacity into technology that's maturing, but in the process actually under-resource more traditional capabilities that are both more more immediately relevant, uh, but uh, and which perhaps uh, you know are already under resourced. So it, it essentially exacerbates some of the uh, existing resource trade offs that fleets face. The second issue, the second issue, I think that fleets uh, do face if they embrace uh, new technology more quickly, is that they don't uh, set the technology in its op operational context. So if you think of, for example, the uncrewed surface vessel threat, what it essentially is, is in many ways, a a new feature of an existing operational reality, namely the threats that naval forces face in littoral spaces, and in particular, the threat to fixed infrastructure upon which they depend. And that's not primarily or even exclusively about uncrewed assets. You know, it could be uh, large numbers of manned uh, sort of expendable assets like the IRGC's small boats or indeed the suicide boats that the LTT used, which, you know, come to mind as previous examples of this uh, of this threat. It could be the threat from cruise missiles or UAVs, uh, which of course are unmanned, uh, or it could be uh, just the fact that fixed infrastructure is relatively easy to saturate with, you know, cruise and ballistic missiles, something that, you know, the US Navy in particular will have to contend with uh, in the event of a conflict in the first island chain. So actually looking at this question from the bottom up, looking at the technology and how it affects the um, sort of the operating environment, uh, elides over the broader problems within which, or, and indeed opportunities uh, within which technology, a, a given piece of technology uh, sits. So it's often more useful, arguably, to start from the top down with the sort of the operational concepts that a fleet or, or indeed a force of any kind wishes to uh, enact and move down to the technology rather than the other way around. Because uh, then you can answer certain questions about <clears throat> You know, what are the opportunity costs of, ado- of adopting a given technology? Could, could this be achieved by more traditional means or does it provide a truly non-substitutable sort of capability, for example? Uh, those sorts of questions are much easier when you have a, a concept of operations against which new technology can be measured rather than building from the technology towards new concepts, which, you know, raises certain risks. Where do you anticipate USVs having the greatest impact in the near future? So I'd say because, uh, so if we look at the sort of relatively cheap, rough and ready USVs used by, for example, the Ukrainians or indeed um, the Houthis, I would say they are limited by a couple of things, as impressive as they are. Field of view being an obvious example, but uh, endurance as well is is a factor. So I'd say in the blue water, it's hard to see them being as impactful where I think they would pose a significant challenge to um, sort of traditional naval force structures is in two places. Uh, the first is congested littorals, uh, you know, in particular maritime choke points, where by the, the nature of geography means that vessels have surrendered or are forced to surrender a certain amount of tactical mobility. 
The second place, I think, is when ves- uh, is vessels in harbor and indeed the supporting infrastructure that uh, enables them. So <clears throat> actually, uh, it's worth noting that the Ukrainians also conducted a smaller raid on an oil terminal near Sevastopol Harbor a little bit after the first uncrewed vessel on, on uh, attack on the, the ships. And, you know, fixed infrastructure or vessels that are tethered to fixed infrastructure uh, effectively represents situations where, you know, the, the problem of field of view, the problem of tracking a dynamic mobile target is to a large extent solved. And then I'd say the third area where I think they could add uh, a new threat vector is situations where vessels have, by virtue of the mission allotted to them, surrendered a certain amount of tactical unpredictability uh, because they are following predictable patterns of behavior. And here I would think of, you know, the enforcement of quarantines being one example where actually you are not completely predictable, but certainly following certain predictable courses, relatively predictable courses of action in, in a given geographical part of the theater at any given time. So I'd say those are the areas in which uncrewed assets with uh, limited fields of view probably do represent the most challenging threat vector. But again, you know, if you think of those three areas I listed, those are also the areas in which anti-ship cruise missiles probably represent a pretty substantial threat vector. They're also the areas in which things like ballistic missiles, you know, represent a threat vector. It's, it's far easier to destroy, you know, supporting infrastructure with ballistic missiles than to say Q in a DF-21 again, D against a, a carrier at sea. So really, I'd say that the real challenge is that you're looking at an emerging state of affairs where the uh, force protection requirements for vessels, large vessels in littoral spaces, and in and in particular the fixed infrastructure on which the ability to project them in many cases depends, are growing. It's not that you can't meet each part of the threat vector; it's that the cost of doing so increases, and therefore the 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 difficulty of scaling operations also increases accordingly. So I think the real operational challenge from which we want to build is how do you project power from the outside in, sort of recognizing that vessels, large ones at least, will have to operate at ever greater distances and reduce their reliance on fixed infrastructure. How do you project power into the littoral and landwards? And, you know, there there have been some... There's been a fair bit of work uh, done on this uh, already, you know, the U.S. Navy looking at options for VLS replenishment at sea comes to mind as as one uh, sort of uh, facet. But but really, it's that bigger picture, I think, within which the uncrewed vessel challenge probably sits. Which leads directly to the last question that I think we're going into. How else are navies preparing to generate mass in the future aside from traditional shipbuilding? Right. So I think uh, the other traditional way you you delivered mass, whether in a naval context or otherwise, was a reliance on irregulars, right? Um, you know, you think of privateers back in uh, the sort of the history of uh, naval warfare. Uh, people, it's effectively boils down to, can you co-op people and assets that you are willing to lose? And certainly you do see a variety of approaches to this being taken. Uh, to give you, uh, to use an example, uh, both, uh, China and, uh, Russia have containerized, uh, the variants of uh, anti-ship cruise missiles they use, uh, the YJ-18 and the Clock. 
<laughs> and the club, which is an export variant of the caliber, respectively, which could, in principle, allow them to be utilized from uh, ISO containers on, you know, repurposed civilian vessels, for example. Uh, China has put a, a fair bit of work into integrating bodies such as its maritime militia, an organization in which uh, various uh, civilian uh, sort of fish, fishermen, amongst others, operate on a on a sort of part-time basis into its existing force structure. So, for example, we've seen them operating, uh, or we've seen uh, regional military commands uh, training maritime militia, in, uh, individuals within the maritime militia to spot vessels, essentially uh, enhancing the PLA's uh, situational aware- awareness and uh, and providing them with the communications uh, sort of uh, infrastructure, uh, sort of equipment to uh, <clears throat> to uh, interact with the PLA. Uh, we've seen uh, the Tianmen militia, uh, a, a regional maritime militia, actually taking part in exercises with uh, PLA and vessels. And, you know, this could be a way of enhancing, uh, you know, the sensor net, uh, potentially. Uh, but you can, you know, think without stretching one's imagination too much of other ways in which these assets could be used. For example, you know, think of the way in which oilers were used during Operation Haystack to provide sort of effectively decoys for, for aircraft carriers along with, you know, other vessels that present uh, multiple sort of vessels presenting a, a radar return that was comparable to a carrier. You could certainly see, you know, militia vessels being used in a similar way. You could also see, you know, larger commercial vessels uh, being weaponized uh, using things like containerized missiles. So, you know, the uh, the PRC, for example, uh, has uh, passed national shipbuilding laws, which uh, compel uh, civilian, which uh, so mandate that new civilian vessels be built to specific military specifications. Uh, thus far, a lot of the emphasis in, in studying this has been on the potential use of civilian ferries to in- increase amphibious lift, which which is, of course, a, a very important uh, issue, especially in a Taiwan Straits context. But you could also consider, for example, turning merchant marine assets into sort of rough and ready missile launch platforms, for example, with containerized cruise missiles, which, yes, would be would need offboard queuing and would probably be far more easy to sink than a dedicated warship, but are also it's fundamentally expendable. So I think the big question there is, as we've seen in Ukraine, you know, no plan sort of survives contact with the enemy. And a lot of the exquisite capabilities that militaries have built, not just Western militaries, even if you look at, you know, the Russian military that went into Ukraine, may actually rapidly degrade in the first phases of a, of a conflict. So how do you regenerate capability at pace when, you know, a warship takes, you know, X number, a, a pretty substantial amount of time to, to sort of turn out? That's, that's, I think, the broad operational ask. And, and I think, you know, uncrewed assets could be part of the solution, but I think it, it'll probably be part of a more federated solution, including, you know, perhaps things like the creative use of auxiliaries to, uh, to generate mass. Well, unfortunately, that's all that we have time for today. Uh, forgot to timestamp this for the listeners earlier, but we record this Sunday, February 19th. So if there's been any sort of dramatic developments in the naval war in the, uh, weeks, in between when we've recorded this and when this actually goes to goes to air. That's why we're not talking about it. But I'd like to thank my guest, Dr. Siddharth Kaushal. Uh, Sid, where can we find you online and what are you working on next? Uh, so you can find my work at uh, Rusi's website, uh, which uh, and speci- uh, specifically uh, sitting within the military sciences team. 
And what I'll be working on next in the immediate future is work on uh, the na- on the evolving naval balance in in the high north. Well, I look forward to reading that when it comes out, and hopefully we can bring you back on to discuss. But thank you again for joining us today. To listeners, thanks for tuning in. We'll see you next time. Thank you for having me.